book of Ecclesiastes, where we are today, should be somewhere around page 559. If you're not very familiar with the Bible, the large numbers are chapter numbers, the small numbers are verse numbers, and we're going to begin reading in chapter 12, verse 9, in just a few minutes. We've been studying through the book of Ecclesiastes uh, for the last several months. Today we come to the end of this book. And one of the things that's helpful to, to see is that the preacher at the very beginning and the end uh, con- begins with some, conclu- uh, some introductory comments and concludes with some concluding comments. So if you flip over to the first page of Ecclesiastes, you'll see he identifies himself and what he's doing. Chapter 1, verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. He identifies himself and then he begins his task. Now here at the end of the book, Chapter 12, verse 9. Beside being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. And then he identifies himself again in verse 10. So chapter 1, verse 1, and chapter 12, verses 9 through 14 are the bookends here for us. The preacher steps back from what he's been teaching us from chapter 1, verse 2, all the way to chapter 12, verse 8. And then he gives us some concluding comments and reflects upon them. And that's what we'll do today in our time together. Reflect upon his reflections. The preacher writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he speaks to us with the same authority as if Jesus Christ himself were here speaking to us today. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, And like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would help us now as we turn our attention to your word. We are so thankful for this time to be together. We look forward to all that you are continuing to do even among us today. The word being preached, the word being read, prayers being prayed, stories of deliverance and conversion. Father, we look forward now to hearing from you as we turn our attention to the word. Protect us from distraction. Help us to focus our minds. We know that the enemy would seek to snatch the good word that we are trying to understand. And we pray by your spirit that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth of the gospel as it has been decisively revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. We ask all of this in the name of our God who has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. Ecclesiastes is a question. Chapter 1, verse 3. What does man gain, profit, benefit in this life by all of the toil at which he toils under the sun? From chapter 1, verse 3 to chapter 12, verse 7, the preacher sought to answer that question. And as we've seen, he looked everywhere in vain in this life under the sun for an answer. So he ended his quest much like he began. Chapter 12, verse 8. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. Yet vanity does not have the last word 
in the book of Ecclesiastes or the Christian life. In fact, after the painful process of failing to find gain, profit, benefit in this life under the sun, the preacher here at the conclusion in his epilogue tells us that something can be done, that there are actions that we can take to find profit, benefit, gain in this life. In chapter 12, verse 9 through 14, he gives the answer to the question of Ecclesiastes so that we can live wisely in God's world. We will study his answer by asking four questions of our own. Notice first, what did the preacher say? Look with me in verses 9 and 10. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The preacher was, verse 9, wise, but he was no ivory tower theologian filled with head knowledge who was unable to converse with people. That's not wisdom. Wisdom maps on to the lives of real people in real time. It's not simply a list of propositions about all the one right ways to live in the world. That's what we would all want. That would be very nice if God just gave us a list of all of the one right things that we are to do in every situation. But if you read the Bible very much at all, you will quickly learn that that is not what God has given to us. So verse 9, he taught the people knowledge. He used the wisdom that he gained to make other people wise, not merely himself. And he did it with excellence. Notice how it's phrased for us here. Weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs. He was curious. He asked questions. He became a student of people as he pondered all of the complexities of life and he carefully evaluated everything that he saw before writing down what he observed with great care for the good of others. Brothers and sisters, wisdom is for the good of others. Wisdom is not primarily about how you can make yourself a better person. Wisdom in the Bible is for the good of other people. And notice verse 10, it is for their pleasure. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. We think of the preacher as a pessimist, and the book of Ecclesiastes as a book for pessimists. And if you're honest, that's why some of you were so nervous when you first learned that I was going to be preaching from Ecclesiastes. And if I'm honest, that is why I avoided preaching from Ecclesiastes. How many sermons can you get out of, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity? Which is why, at the end of the service, some of you have come up to me and said, it's all vanity anyways, right? Reminding ourselves of how much can we get out of a book that we think is primarily to just make us feel bad about life. But verse 10 tells us that the preacher sought to find words of delight for his readers, which I trust is something that you have seen throughout our study of Ecclesiastes. The preacher is not a biblical killjoy reigning on life's parade. He is a wordsmith. He's an artist. He is painting a verbal picture to make all of his teaching come to life for us. But he isn't simply being flowery like some of you when you're writing your papers and adding a bunch of adverbs to increase your word count. He, verse 10, wrote words of truth. Truth and beauty go together in the book of Ecclesiastes. As one pastor said, 
we often look at the Bible through the lens of the last word in chapter 12, verse 10, truth. We want to know, is the Bible reliable? Can we trust what it says? Is this how we're to live? Is it true? That's fine, but that's not how the Bible actually works. It works by being beautiful because it's true and true because it's beautiful. In Ecclesiastes, God gives us beautiful words of delight that are true. Just consider for a moment the three poems in the book of Ecclesiastes. The opening poem in chapter 1, verse 4. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the heart of the sea, but the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow. There they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Or the central poem, in chapter 3, verse 1. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born, and a time to die. A time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill, and a time to heal. A time to break down, and a time to build up. A time to weep, and a time to laugh. A time to mourn, and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones, and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek, and a time to lose. A time to keep, and a time to cast away. A time to tear, and a time to sow. A time to keep silence, and a time to speak. A time to love, and a time to hate. A time for war, and a time for peace. Or the end poem, chapter 12, verses 5 through 7. Desire fails because man is going to his eternal home. And the mourners go about the streets before the silver cord is snapped. And the golden bowl is broken. And the pitcher is shattered at the fountain. Or the wheel broken at the cistern. And the dust returns to the earth as it was. And the spirit returns to God who gave it. Aesthetically pleasing words that are absolutely true in the book of Ecclesiastes, that convey a very serious message for us. Life is vanity. It is a breath, a vapor, a mist that is here today and gone tomorrow. Like steam rising from a warm lake on a chilly morning, life vanishes into thin air before you knew it. By the end of the matter... We know that there is nothing to gain from all of our restless toil under the sun. Wisdom is vanity because we all die no matter how wise we become. Wealth is vanity because it will be enjoyed by another person after us no matter how much we accumulate in this life. Wine is vanity because no matter how much we drink or how good or how refined it is, it can never cheer our weary soul. Through beautiful words of delight, the preacher teaches us that life is meaningless without God, that there is little joy under the sun if we try to leave our creator out of his universe. At the end of the matter, you know that you've actually begun to understand the words of Ecclesiastes and the preacher of Ecclesiastes when you realize that his words are actually meant to make you smile. Though if we read carefully, sometimes they make us cringe. What did the preacher say? Notice second, how did the preacher say it? Look in chapter 12, verse 11. 
The words of the wise are like goads. And like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. Goads are hooked staffs used by shepherds to keep animals in lines, but they are not always blunt. In ancient times, they actually had sharp nails embedded into them so as to poke and to prod the flock on a straight path. So one commentator noted, if the animal went too far to the left, there would be pain. And if it went too far to the right, there would be pain. And if it stopped, more pain. The only way that the animal could avoid pain was to go the way that the shepherd wanted to go. The preacher throughout Ecclesiastes has been goading us along, wounding us. And some of his words, if we're honest, have been very difficult indeed. Chapter 2, verse 16. For of the wise as of the fool there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. How's that for all of your accomplishments in this life? No one will remember that you ever lived. Chapter 4, verse 2. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. How's that for the family members that you're taking care of and the friends that you're hoping that God will extend their life? Chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. There is an evil that I've seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity and a grievous evil. How's that for all of the things that we have in this life? We don't even get to bask in their glory. Chapter 11, verse 8. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Sharp words by the preacher, dispelling our illusions of grandeur, our illusions of control, and upsetting our daydreams of significance. Ecclesiastes is the Bible's cattle prod guiding us to patience and contentment and joy as we remember our Creator reminding ourselves that we will die. And this forces us to ask, what is it about us that requires God to speak to us like this. Why aren't the gentle words of a shepherd enough for his people? Because there resides in us a hardness that would just as soon turn away than walk in the way of wisdom. Earlier in this service, we read words that many people know but few people believe from Romans chapter 3. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. God looked throughout the entire world. He looked the whole world over to see if there was one righteous person. African, American, Korean, Lithuanian, other. And do you know how many he found? None. Not one person among the rich or the poor, in the east or the west... No one does good. All have, the apostle said, exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. Our blindness 
and refusal to believe truth when we are confronted with it is the reason that the preacher of Ecclesiastes has to speak to us with such elegant force over and over and over again throughout his book so that we might finally turn away from folly and look for lasting satisfaction in the creator rather than the creature. But that's not all. Verse 11 also tells us the preacher's words are like nails, not merely sharp and piercing, but firmly fixed. That is, they're memorable, driven into our minds like a nail that has been pounded into wood. Some of the most memorable statements that we have in all of the Bible are found in this obscure book that almost no one wants to read and few people want to preach. Chapter 1, verse 2. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Chapter 3, verse 11. He has put eternity into man's heart. Chapter 4, verse 9. Two are better than one. Chapter 4, verse 12. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Chapter 9, verse 11. The race is not to the swift nor the battle to the strong. Chapter 10, verse 1. Just a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. All of these words, the collected sayings that get nailed into our minds and goad us along are prodding us to action, the preacher tells us, and are given, verse 11, by one shepherd. God himself is the shepherd, which is why the ESV capitalizes the term. The shepherd who gives wisdom in Ecclesiastes is the one shepherd that the prophet Ezekiel refers to, the Messiah, the son of David. If you have your Bible, just flip over to Ezekiel chapter 34. In Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 23, the prophet writes this. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. Ezekiel 37, verse 24. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. The messianic shepherd of the sheep, Jesus Christ. Now if you have your Bible, I want everybody to turn to the Gospel of John. Chapter 10. John chapter 10. Famous chapter and famous words. John writes this in chapter 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd, Jesus is speaking. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, took on flesh to dwell among us. And throughout his earthly life, he preached words of wisdom that call us to eternal life. But ultimately, Jesus did more than preach. He gave. He gave his life as a substitute on the cross for the people that he so loved so that if anyone would hear the beautiful words of everlasting life and believe in them by repentance from sin and faith, they might be saved. Friends, the preacher of Ecclesiastes is telling us that Jesus came dispelling the illusions of meaning apart from the Maker. But unlike the preacher of Ecclesiastes, Jesus invites us to profit, benefit, gain by repentance from sin through his work on the cross. The question that confronts all of us is, will you trust him today? Will you turn away from your sins and lay hold to everlasting life? 
The Bible says that everybody in this room came in here with something in common. Everybody in here has a soul that will never die, and everybody in this room is a sinner by birth and by choice. And the only way for you to have everlasting life is to turn away from death by repenting of your sins and trusting in Jesus Christ, the mighty friend of sinners. Will you place your faith in him alone for the forgiveness of sins? Not in your performance, but in him alone. Not in your intelligence, but in him alone. Not in what you've accomplished in this life, but in him alone. Not in your sphere group or your relationships, but in him alone. Not in what your parents told you is true about you, but in Christ alone. Will you look to the one shepherd who gives eternal life? And the question that confronts all of us is, have you actually trusted him? Let me ask you, when was the last time that you submitted to and acted on what the Bible says, even when you did not like what it says? Have you obeyed when you found what it says to be offensive or difficult? If God cannot command you to do what you do not want to do, then either he is not God or he is not your God because of our sinful nature. If we do not like what the Bible says, we all go through the same troubleshooting process. We find ways of challenging what it says to domesticate it, to bring it down to something much more manageable so that it actually lines up with the way that we would rather live life so that we don't have to do what it says. Let me ask you, does the Bible give you Jesus Christ and him crucified for your sins or just a conservative Christian ethic so that you can live in the 21st century of America? Jesus Christ is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, the one John identifies as the one shepherd. Just a few verses later in John chapter 10, he says in verse 16, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Brothers and sisters, just look around the room at the type of people that Jesus Christ is drawing to himself. Men and women, young and old, Black, white, Hispanic, other, from different socioeconomic statuses and educational opportunities, gathered together today to hear the word of Christ freely preached because Jesus is doing the work of drawing people to himself from literally everywhere on the planet so that they might be one flock, one people, united under one shepherd. They would repent of their sins and trust in Jesus Christ. What you heard consistently in all of the testimonies is that nobody comes to faith in Jesus Christ differently than other people. Everybody comes the exact same way, recognizing that they're a sinner, turning away from that sin, and pleading the mercy of Christ. Have you pled the mercy of Christ? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ? If we examined your life carefully today, what would your life show that you are trusting in, believing in, hoping in. If we looked at the way that you're spending your money and the way that you're living your life at work and the way that you're living your life behind closed doors, what would it show that you are trusting in, that you're believing in, that you're hoping in? 
If we read all of the comments that you put everywhere on all types of social media, what would it show that your trust is in? The mercy of God in the face of Jesus Christ? Or something else? What did the preacher say? How did the preacher say it? Notice third, why was the preacher concerned? Chapter 12, verse 12. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness to the flesh. What the preacher says about writing and reading can be confirmed by every professor and graduate student of all time. Even in the ancient world, there were way more books than were capable of being read, and there was more information than they had the ability to analyze, synthesize, and write down. But I am not sure that that is the primary sense of this proverbial statement. That we are reminded that we just simply live in a world of over-publication and constant information. Rather, it seems that the preacher is giving us a warning about giving too much authority to the wrong authorities. Like the person Paul warned Timothy about. They are, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 7, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Who are you listening to? Are they making you more holy or more angry? How you answer that question says something about the type of wisdom that you are giving yourself to. Where do you get your Christian ethic from? By that I mean, where do you get the information that informs how you live your life under the sun this side of eternity? The Bible or Facebook? What voice or voices have priority in your life? Those online and in the media are the voice of the one shepherd. The preacher is concerned that we give too much authority to the wrong authorities and then cannot make our way through the world. Wisdom, the Bible tells us, informs how we live through the world. And if we do not listen to the right voices of wisdom, then you know what we do on Sunday mornings? We listen to sermons for other people. And we begin to listen for all of the things that they need to know. And we look for opportunities in our lives to correct all of what we think to be the stupid and foolish and idiotic things that people are saying in every area of their life. Because it is our job to fix it and make sure that they listen. The book of Ecclesiastes says, you're giving too much authority to the wrong authorities. That's not your job. Because your job is to listen to the one shepherd. Now, your job isn't to listen to a sermon for somebody else. Your job is to listen to the sermon for you. Because what you need is what everybody else in this room needs. To hear the voice of the Son of God calling us away from sin and to trust in his forgiveness and to plead his mercy. What did the preacher say? How did the preacher say it? Why is the preacher concerned? Notice fourth, what does the preacher tell us to do? Verse 13, the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. After telling us all is vanity over and over again, 
There's vanity in knowledge. There's vanity in wisdom. There's vanity in work. There's vanity in wealth. There's vanity in women. There's vanity in wine. There's vanity in the ways that we live under the sun. All is vanity. The preacher finally tells us that there is something that we can do, which is what we all want to know. What do I need to do? Give me the practical import for all of this teaching. And at the end of it all, the preacher gives us two imperatives. Verse 13, fear God, keep his commandments. The attitude of fearing God should result, verse 13, in the action of keeping his commandments. The attitude of fearing God should, verse 13, result in the action of keeping his commandments. But notice how comprehensive the imperative is, verse 13. For this is the whole duty of man. This is the perspective, the lens by which we are to see all of life. We think in terms of dreams and goals and ambitions and accomplishments, successes and failures. But the preacher says that the dominant reprise of our life in absolutely every area of our life, no matter where we might compartmentalize it and categorize it, is to fear God and to keep his commandments. So as one preacher said... Perhaps if we were to think of doing everything for God first and foremost, it would quite radically change what we do for one another. Everything I do, first and foremost then, is for God. And everything that you do, first and foremost then, is for God. That is the kind of person that Ecclesiastes is calling us to be. Brothers and sisters who fear people in here, you in particular, pay attention. Fear God, not man. Some of us wake up every day of our lives and we are more concerned about satisfying a spouse or our children or our friends or the people at church or the people at work or our neighbors so that they might finally think more highly of us or think that we matter, or that we've done something significant, that we contribute, that we are important, that we have accomplished something, that our life mattered, that it was actually worth all of the living, and the time, and the energy, and the sacrifice. And we don't fear God. And what does that do for all of us who live like, life like that? It creates anxiety. We never know what to do or where to put our foot. We're afraid every single moment of our lives, fearful that we will misstep, that we turn down the wrong opportunity. And when we did, we cut off every other thing that we would get in our life. And if only we would have just made a series of better decisions, we'd all be happier right now. The preacher tells us that this will radically shape the way that we live our lives. It will make us bolder in what we say more concerned for God's truth rather than the approval of others. It will make us more concerned with how we actually live with one another to do spiritual good to them. It will make us more gentle, realizing that God has commanded that we forgive one another as he has forgiven us. It will make us more joyful and less grumpy and more generous and free with all that we have because we will finally seek to fear God and keep his commandments. This is the pathway to the wise life, an attitude of fearing God that results in the action of keeping his commandments. But what is it that motivates all of this in our life? 
The preacher tells us what should motivate it. Look at verse 14. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The preacher's wisdom is both ethical, how we live our life, and eschatological, preparing us for the end. Because one of the hardest things about Ecclesiastes is letting it instruct us in those areas where there seems to be no immediate answer for certain things in life. Chapter 4, verse 1. I saw all of the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. What do you say to that? What do you say to people who are living in circumstances like that? When their life is like what we prayed for earlier, for God to provide. There's been no answer and no relief, and all is hard. And everything that they love is just slipping through their fingers like water at the beach. The only answer that we can give if we're humble is ultimately that God will make all wrong things right. So we are to prepare to meet him. At the end of the matter, we are told to fear God because one day we will all fall into the hands of judgment. Whether we are ready to come before God now or we have lived our whole lives seeking to avoid him, the truth is that one day every single person in this room will stand before a holy God and the Bible says that you will give an account for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. The things that you're hiding that no one else knows. How's that going for you? And how well do you think that they're hidden? The Bible tells us that someone sees, that someone is listening, paying very careful attention to all of the details of our lives. That nothing that we have ever said or done or thought or written has gone unnoticed. And that one day we will be brought before him and we will stand before him face to face and he will bring every deed into judgment. Every sin will be exposed along with every single kindness in our life, no matter how unnoticed we thought that it went. Are you prepared to stand before God the judge? Brothers and sisters, today is the day of salvation. And the words of the preacher prepare us for that judgment. Calling us to wisdom. Calling us to Christ. Calling us to the one shepherd. The only way to be ready for that day today is to bow the knee to Jesus in repentance and faith and to trust in him. Come to Christ. Hope in Christ. Whether you're struggling with anger and rage and alcohol or whether you grew up and lived a somewhat moral and normal life like one of the other testimonies, the same door is open to all. Come to Christ. Believe in Christ. Hope in Christ. Trust in Christ. And he will never cast you out. See, the thing at church is that so often we either hide it really well or we are prone to believe even here that we have sinned ourselves out of the grace of God. And the Bible confronts us time and again and says, it is impossible for you to sin yourself out of the grace of God. It is impossible for you to sin yourself beyond his reach. That he will come to you. That he will forgive you. That he will save you. That he will show mercy to you. Jesus is always merciful with repentant sinners. Always in the Bible. Read the Gospels. He is always merciful. He is fierce with hypocrites. Which one are you?
a repentant sinner or a religious hypocrite? Ecclesiastes says a day is coming when we will discover that what we are not ready for will be thrust upon us and everything will be laid bare and everything that we sought to avoid will be brought before us. For the believer, this is not a reality to fear, but that is the day when this life gives way to the next and comfort comes. Some of you have suffered greatly in this life. Some of you have had hard and difficult days. Some of you are living those days now. We are so glad that you are here. We are so glad that you have come. We long for this to be a place where we pray for one another, where we minister to one another, where we share one another's burdens. And we invite you today to do two things. To trust in Christ. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. And to seek out one of the other members of this church, we would love to pray with you. If you're a man and you'd rather talk to another man, we'd love to connect you to one of the elders in this church. If you're a woman and you would rather not talk to one of the elders in this church, you feel that what you have to share is something that's too personal to share with another man at this point, that is totally fine. We have other godly women that we would love to connect you to. If you don't know where any are, there's two sitting right here on the front row, Rebecca and Amy, they would love to talk to you. And if you can't find them, come speak to me and I would just point you in the direction of one of them. They would love to open God's word with you and share your burden with you and tell you more about Christ. The question of Ecclesiastes is answered in the epilogue. And it tells us that there is meaning under the sun, but that meaning comes from beyond the sun. And the message of Ecclesiastes is not that nothing matters, but actually that everything matters in this life and for all eternity. Let's pray. God, we do ask that you would help us now to believe the words that we have heard and to trust in Jesus, the mighty friend of sinners. Father, I thank you for these men and these women who have come today to present themselves as baptismal candidates. God, we ask that here at the beginning of this time where they are going public with their faith and identifying with the local church, Lord, that you might give them courage to continue to walk in the faith once for all delivered to the saints. But God, I pray for those today who are here, who have been baptized, may they be reminded of your great work of grace in their life. And for those who are here, who have believed and not yet been baptized or have not yet believed, may they see the gospel on display in the waters of baptism. That we are buried with Christ and we are raised to walk in the new way of life. Putting to death what the way that we once lived and putting on righteousness as we set our minds on things above. And we ask all of this in the name of our triune God. Amen.